So where can you find psalms to sing? Well, you can find them in books like these. Um, as you can see, there are cute little devotional ones and also very much more official-looking pew rack versions. Um, and these have, they look like a regular hymnal, but instead of hymns, it's a psalm on every page, uh, of course, set to music. And um, something that we've done in our family um, months ago, some months ago, is I've started using this during family worship. Uh, so if you're a husband or a father that leads your wife or children in family worship on a regular basis, or even if you're you know, not in that context, uh, this could be a good way um, to use them in your home uh, to sing God's Word with your family. Um, and then, of course, uh, whether we realize it or not, there are numbers of churches out there this morning that have these books in their pew rack, and so they use them on Sunday morning in that context. But um, if you want to look at these, come see me afterwards. Um, they're easily found on a thing called Amazon, um, and they can probably be at your house in less than two days. So um, let's open our Bibles. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 90 and Psalm 103, but I'll read Psalm 100 just as a prayer as we get started. So Psalm 100, a psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good, His loving kindness is everlasting, and His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. So now we are in week five of our survey, so we'll be finishing up next week, and we're looking at book four of the Psalms today. Um, and as, if you recall from previous weeks, um, we saw that book one and book two of the Psalms were largely dominated by Psalms of David written often as from his perspective as king over Israel, oftentimes in distress. David was often in trouble. Um, also, of course, he had many um, psalms of praise or confession. But then we saw last week when we looked at book three that book three had a different focus. Uh, book three seemed to be focused on that dark period of Israel's his history of the Babylonian captivity. And as we saw again last week, uh, the last psalm from book 3, Psalm 89, revealed to us a psalmist whose faith was very much struggling in that dark period of time. Now, we don't need to go through all that again, but I mention it um, because psalms scholars seem to be agreed that books 4 and book 5, these last two books of the psalms, were largely compiled as an answer to that darkness and difficulty presented in book three. Now, most of the Psalms in book four are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. That's not the case uh, for every one of them. In fact, the two we're gonna look at today, we do know who wrote them. Um, but the fact that most of them are anonymous also make it difficult to know exactly when they were written. It could be that, um, it seems to be, uh, that many of them were written during that time of the exile or towards the end of the Bab Babylonian captivity. 
um, either writing them at that time, or it could have been that there were editors and compilers that were ransacking the archives, as it were, looking through whatever documents that they were able to bring with them during the captivity, um, and as they're now anticipating the return back to Jerusalem, um, perhaps they're looking for these songs and psalms to begin to use them again. It could also be that after Israel returns to Jerusalem, uh, perhaps they were able to find some hidden treasure trove that were hidden away and preserved while they were away from their home. And so they're able to uh, either have these new psalms written or find older ones, and they put them together in these last two books, I think, largely to show and to remind themselves that, in fact, God had not abandoned His people. Now, we add to this the fact that, interestingly, Moses makes a number of appearances in Book 4. Um, in the psalm we're going to look at today, Psalm 90, is actually the only psalm we have that Moses himself wrote. Now, it's not the only song that Moses wrote. We have songs that he wrote uh, from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, but as far as our book of Psalms goes, only Psalm 90 is written by Moses. And then aside from that, Moses makes appearances, or he's referred to, um, in six other different psalms in book four. And it appears that this is actually no accident. So a couple of quotes in this regard. First of all, Jeffrey Grogan says this, quote, If the people of God were troubled by questions such as those raised towards the close of Psalm 89, questions about the Davidic dynasty and its apparent demise, then this psalm, Psalm 90, was a reminder to them that God's purposes for His people did not begin with David, but the real roots of Israel's position as God's nation are to be found in the Pentateuch, end quote, the first five books of the Bible. And then in a similar way, Christopher Ashe says this regarding book four as a whole, quote, overall, there is a pushing back deeper into Israel's history behind the covenant with David that appears to be broken, and they're looking to the story of God's faithfulness right back to Abraham and then to the time of Moses. And there's also a pushing up beyond the hope for an earthly Messiah to the sovereign God in heaven who guarantees that hope, end quote. So there's a few thoughts about book four as a whole. And so now let's read Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou dost turn man back into dust, and dost say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Thou hast swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we have been dismayed. Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy presence. For all our days have declined in thy fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. 
as by the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury, according to the fear that is due thee? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for thy servants. O satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days thou hast afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Let thy work appear to thy servants, and thy majesty to their children. And let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and do confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So in some ways, it's difficult to pin down the tone of this psalm. It is somber and it is serious, as Moses is reflecting on the contrast of man the ephemeral and God the eternal. And in fact, Derek Kidner writes that in some traditions, I suppose in the past, Psalm 90 was apparently the go-to psalm for reading at funerals. Now, I didn't realize that because it seems that all of the funerals that I've been to It seems that Psalm 23 is the go-to psalm, and that might be perhaps because Psalm 23, I think, makes us feel better than Psalm 90 does. But still, even though the psalm is somber and serious, it does end on a hopeful note, and I think we can see um, kind of four different parts of the psalm, and then an important kind of lesson or key verse in verse 12. Uh, So let's look through these four parts. First of all, God's eternal existence. In verse 1 and verse 2, Moses refers to the longest time spans imaginable in these first two verses. He says that the Lord has been the dwelling place of God's people for all generations. That is, as long as God has ever had people alive on the earth. So I think Moses is going all the way back to the beginning. He's going back to creation, in fact, in verse 1. And then in verse 2, Moses goes back to even before anything had been made, even before time began. And in these four words, from everlasting to everlasting, Moses skips outside of time entirely. The purpose of him doing this is to remind himself and ourselves that God is eternal. And really, I think rarely can four words carry such freight, but from everlasting to everlasting. This is how Moses is saying God's being is from everlasting to everlasting. And again, why is this important? Well, because I think the the perspective that it brings, Um, especially given our context last week in Psalm 89, uh, Ethan was so, I think, puzzled and disillusioned based on what he was seeing with the state of God's people in the period of the Babylonian captivity but I think we could realize that it really was only a period and really a brief period of time. Yes, it lasted for 70 years, but as we'll see as we continue in this psalm, that's actually not a long time in God's time scale. So Moses brings us, I think, this much-needed perspective that God is eternal and God has always and ever has been the dwelling place for God's people. And then verse 3 through 6 Moses contrasts the eternality of God with man's temporary existence. 
First of all, he reminds us um, that man returns to dust at the end of his life. and says in verse 3, thou dost turn man back into dust. And I think, again, this is an echo of creation language because we know from the account in Genesis that what was it that God used to create man in the first place? Well, it was out of the dust of the ground. And then in verse 4, we have this well-known description of how God sees time. We know, of course, that God stands outside of time. Um, And so our reckoning of time is in many ways irrelevant to God because it says that in His sight, a thousand years is like yesterday or even a shorter period of time than that, a watch in the night, which is only a few hours long. And then in verse 5 and 6, we see another familiar description, this time the way that man is compared to grass. We know that grass sprouts new in the morning. It might flourish for the day, but then it doesn't take much for grass to wilt and die away. And so Moses is telling us that this is the life of man. But honestly, how often do we really think about our lives that way? How often do we really consider that we come from the most common of stuff, dust? And we spend our lives in our homes trying to get rid of dust. And we have our own battles with grass, right? But this is how our lives are described, like dust and like grass. To be likened to these things that are so temporary and so common, things that are here today and gone tomorrow, should be humbling for us. And then, in verse 7 through 11, um, it actually takes an even more sobering turn, uh, because Moses then begins to speak of God's anger and God's wrath, God's fury against sin, sin which we cannot conceal from God. Even our secret sins, it says, are laid bare in the light of His presence. So here, I think Moses is giving us the reason why our lives are so ephemeral and so temporary. It is, of course, because of the curse of sin. It's not because God is a tyrant or an ogre or because God arbitrarily created man to be short-lived. No, the fact that our lives are generally only 70 years or 80 years long, it's because of sin. And we know that sin permeates every part of our lives, and inevitably, it does lead to death. As a wise man or woman once observed, the mortality rate is holding steady at 100%. In this regard, Derek Kidner says, quote, Death's universal shadow is a standing reminder of our human solidarity in sin and of the seriousness with which God God views this, end quote. And not only are our lives so brief, but verse 10 says that they're also filled with difficult labor and sorrow. And in this regard, Alan Harmon says, quote, behind the words of these verses of Psalm 90 is the realization that in life we make so many mistakes and we achieve so little, end quote. So, what are we to do in light of all these somber truths. Psalm 90 can almost be depressing. Well, we have a number of options. What do we do with this? Well, first of all, we could act if these truths are actually not true. And we could determine that we're going to just blissfully carry on with life, determined not to be dragged down by such somber and serious stuff. That's one option. 
Another option is, well, we could accept that, yes, our lives on this earth are brief, and because of that, well, then we need to get out of life as much as we can, because it's not going to last that long. And in fact, we know that this is a way that a number of people approach life, their lives, and that they throw themselves into every pursuit of happiness and pleasure, trying to get as much as they can while they can. Or another option of what we could do in light of these truths is we could learn the lesson of verse 12. Look at verse 12 again, where Moses says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. So, what is Moses saying here? Well, I think he's saying that, first of all, we do need to accept the humble and lowly state of our existence. And we need to recognize that our time is short, but of course, okay, but now what? Well, the lesson is our short time shouldn't be wasted. We can't waste it by either just lolling away the days without a care in the world, but we also shouldn't waste it by simply throwing ourselves into the pursuit of pleasure or sin. Rather, I think uh, Moses is reminding us that we need to set ourselves to the task that God has called us, and that's to fear Him and keep His commandments, not because we're seeking to earn God's favor or avoid His wrath, but simply because this is the way of wisdom. This would be the wise way for God's children to live, to make the most of every opportunity for as long as we are able to, because we realize that we don't know how long we have. We don't know. Any one of our lives could be extinguished in the next day, the next month, even the next hour. We just don't know. It makes me think, um, this sort of thing makes me think about Jesus' little parable in Luke chapter 12, when there was this man that was very successful, and he was accumulating more and more stuff, and so what did he decide to do? He decided just to build more and bigger barns just to keep all of his stuff, you know, bigger barns, more stuff. And what did Jesus say to this man? He said, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. That is, this man's days had come to an end, but the man totally was not preparing for that. He was preparing that perhaps his life would just continue and continue and continue. And Jesus told this man in the parable his time was up. And so he was shown that have not presented to God a heart of wisdom, but Jesus called him a fool. He was shown to be a fool. And so, this is the lesson for us, that God would number our days, help us to know that our days are numbered, so that we won't waste them, and we might use them for him. And then the final segment of the psalm, Moses leads us, I think, in light of our humble and brief existence, he leads us um, in appealing for God's unmerited favor and blessing. Look at verse 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. So things brighten here. Moses is looking for things to be satisfied and to be made glad and to sing for joy. And again, we see this word loving kindness. This is that Hebrew word hesed that keeps showing up in the Psalms we're looking at. 
But really, I want to focus on verse 15. Look what it says. Make us glad according to the days thou hast afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Now, this is an interesting request, because what is Moses actually asking for? Well, here is one way that I might paraphrase it. Something like this. Lord, if it would be possible, during our brief little time on this earth, could you make the number of our days of gladness equal to the number of our days of affliction? Moses isn't asking to have no days of affliction. He's not even asking for his days of gladness to be more than his days of affliction. He's simply asking for them to balance out somehow, that God might give him the same number of days of gladness as he has days of affliction. Now, in some ways, it's a strange prayer, but I think it's a very humble prayer, and it's a realistic prayer. Moses understands what man's life is like, and so he asks for his days of affliction to be equaled by days of gladness. But we also know that in the New Testament, we're given this promise from 2 Corinthians 4.17, You're familiar with this. Paul writes, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now that actually far outruns Moses' little prayer. Because what Paul is telling us there is that we'll find that by the time our lives are over, when we enter into God's presence in heaven, we'll actually find an eternal weight of joy and gladness and glory that far outweighs any of our days of affliction that we had on the earth. Moses understood. I'm sorry. Um, So the last two verses of the psalm, Moses begins to speak of our work. He says, Let thy work appear to thy servants, and thy majesty to their children, and let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and do confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So what is Moses asking for here? He says it twice at the end, confirm for us the work of our hands. Well, I think Moses understood that with God's favor upon us, that is, with God's grace upon us, even though our lives on this earth might be very brief, Actually, our work that we do can outlive our short little lives. Even though our lives are fixed a certain amount of time, we actually have no way to know how long the work that we do in this life might continue to bear fruit after we're gone. Asking for God to confirm the work of our hands is, I think, Moses realizing that our ministry, our service, our discipleship in this life can actually far outlive us. And I think that should give us hope to the degree that we're imparting these things to the next generation. They can profit from our lives long after we're gone. So, turn over to Psalm 103. And as you're doing so, I'll make a confession. Because Psalm 103 is actually my favorite psalm. Um, 
And so some weeks or months ago, as I was trying to decide what psalms to include in the survey, um, I made a decision that, you know, I'm not going to include any of the psalms that Pastor Dan has preached over the years. I simply thought, well, Dan's preached through a number of psalms, and uh, there's no reason for me to repeat things, or we've already received good teaching from Dan on these, so I'll stay away from whatever psalms he's already preached. But as I'm looking on the church website trying to find all these psalms that Dan's preached, I confess to being not a little annoyed when I found that he has already preached Psalm 103. I said it is my favorite psalm. And so, well, what did I do? Um, Well, after some soul-searching for about 30 seconds, I decided to throw out my rule and include 103 in the survey anyway. Uh, Well, wait till I'm done, Russ. Um, But like I said, it's my favorite psalm, and some of you may very much enjoy it as well. And interestingly, Martin Luther apparently also enjoyed Psalm 103, Um, 103, as well as some other psalms, were a group that Luther called the Pauline Psalms. That's not because he thought Paul wrote it, but because he found that in these psalms, uh, the psalmist was teaching the exact same thing about God's grace and forgiveness that Paul teaches in his New Testament letters. And I think that's true. So, Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassions, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle." The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, Obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So, similar, in fact, to Psalm 90, I think we can break it down into four parts. And we also have kind of a standalone lesson 
uh, in verse 19, not unlike what we had in Psalm 90. Um, So let's look at these four parts. First of all, verses 1 through 5, David is praising the Lord for all of God's benefits. In fact, David is rousing himself to praise the Lord. He's telling his soul, and not only his soul, but all that is within him to bless and praise the Lord. He's also telling his soul not to forget some things, not to forget any of God's benefits. And notice how in verse 3 through 5, he piles up these benefits, kind of one on top of the other, repeatedly telling us that it is God who does these things. God pardons our iniquities. He heals our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit. He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies our years with good things. And as a result of that, our youth is renewed like the eagle. And I think we can actually begin to make some connections back to Psalm 90. We'll see this several times in Psalm 103. A number of connections or comparisons with Moses' psalm. Because Moses had lamented man's condition in sin. That is, being consumed by God's anger. And all of our iniquities being placed before God, which is, of course, correct. Uh, But here, David gives us the rest of the story. At least for all those who have come to God in Christ by grace through faith. We find that in that case, God's anger is averted that we are not consumed, and that, in fact, God is merciful to pardon our iniquities, to heal our diseases, and redeem our lives from the pit. And we can see another connection with Psalm 90 in the fact that David is also talking about years and youth. He's talking about our span of life, very much like Moses was. But again, David's outlook is a little bit different. Because Moses had described man's life as days of decline, or the idea that um, man finishes his years with a sigh. I think that kind of imagery that Moses used, it's understandable because as man gets older, he loses strength, he slows down, such that in many cases it seems that by the end of his life, he just kind of expires, kind of with a sigh. But David seems to be contrasting that and saying that because of the Lord's benefits, God satisfies our years, our lives, with good things, such that our youth is actually renewed. Our lives can be renewed like the eagle, even when we are advanced in years. And then David continues, verses 6 through 14, kind of the, the main section of this psalm. David begins to talk about the covenant Lord's character and actions. And particularly, David is focusing on, I think, God's unmerited favor and grace in salvation. And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that in verse 7, Moses actually makes an appearance. David refers to Moses explicitly in verse 7. David is here referring to something about Moses, what um, God has made known to Moses and his act to the sons of Israel. And really, I think that David's not just looking back to just the Exodus, but I think to all of the things that happened during that period of time, even after that, the wilderness wanderings and the things also happening at Sinai. David says that the Lord has made these things known 
to Moses, his ways and his acts. I think that's God's character and his actions. Now, why does David look back to that period in history? David could have looked further back to the time of Noah or the time of Abraham in order to understand God's ways and acts. Or he could have looked back to the time of the judges, or David could have looked at his own time when David was king to understand God's ways and acts. But I think he looks back to Moses perhaps for two reasons. First of all, I think we probably know um, that all of the events connected with Israel's exodus from bondage in Egypt that really remained the high watermark of God's faithfulness throughout the Old Testament. The Exodus is referred to again and again and again as the prime example of God's love and faithfulness to redeem His people. And then secondly, why else would David look back to this time in Israel's history? Well, I think if someone were to ask David, who is this God that you serve? Who is He? What is He like? Well, as reasons I think will... revealed to us, I think David would have naturally answered that question with a text that we've already seen in this survey, and that's from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which was that account when God revealed himself to Moses. In that account, God revealed his ways and his acts, the fact that God uh, was determined to forgive the sins of his people, but also that he wasn't going to leave the guilty unpunished. God revealed to Moses that he was also merciful, but he was also just. And in fact, that particular text from Exodus 34, God revealing himself to Moses, also appears again and again and again in the Old Testament, directly quoted, I think, at least eight different times. And verse 8 of this psalm is a direct quote of what God told Moses. Moses, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now, our children's catechism asks the question, who is God? And the answer they must give is God is spirit and does not have a body like men. And that, of course, is a correct answer so far as it goes. But actually, as I've been studying this psalm, it began to occur to me that really that answer, God is spirit and does not have a body like men, that's really answering the question, what is God? It's not really saying, who is God? And so, if we want to know who God is, I think these verses from Psalm 103, which of course are coming from, in some way, what God told Moses in Exodus 34, I think it's a much fuller answer of who God is. And in fact, David goes beyond what Moses had said in Psalm 90, because again, while Moses was very clear and sober-minded about man's sinfulness and God's anger towards sin, which of course results in death, um, David is being very clear not about God's anger towards sin, but about God's answer for sin, which is of course forgiveness. And look at the way that forgiveness is described in verse 10. It says, First of all, he's not treated us as our sins deserve. And then in verse 11, David begins to use this powerful poetic imagery to describe the extents of God's forgiveness and grace. He says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. 
So how high or how far does God's loving kindness go? Well, it's said here that it goes a distance that cannot be measured. You can't say um, that God's commitment to his people or God's grace to his people starts here and ends here. You can't put those limits on it. As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's obviously an unmeasurable distance. And then again in verse 12, he gives us another image. Similar to verse 11, he gives us another kind of distance image as far as the east is from the west. Well, how far is that? Again, I think we realize that that's an unimmeasurable distance. Although, as I was looking at a globe this week, I'm sure that you looked at globes too this week, looking at a globe, and I thought, well, actually, maybe there's a way. I know where I am. Could I draw a line like straight through the globe and find the exact opposite place on the earth? So that if I went east or west, eventually I would come to this place that was as far as I could get from my particular location. Now, obviously, we shouldn't let our knowledge of the roundness of the globe blunt the force of what David is saying. Because David's audience didn't know that the earth was round. They didn't realize that, yes, if I went east or west as far as I could, I might eventually get to a place that's kind of as far as I could get from myself. But maybe no one has ever thought that before, but I thought about it. But I think clearly what David is saying is that as far as east is from the west is a distance, again, that cannot be measured. So the conclusion, I think, is that if you've come to God in Christ by grace through faith, how far has God removed your sins from you? Well, he's removed them an infinite distance that has no end. And why should that bring us comfort? Because if he really has removed our sins that far from us, then it means that our sins can never come back to us and be held against us. So in some ways, we might say, that the angry threatenings of God's wrath and fury in Psalm 90 are met by the love and compassion of God's grace in Psalm 103. And in some ways that would be correct, but we should be careful if we're trying to contrast these ideas so concretely like that. Because it's not because Moses didn't know or understand God's grace It's not because between Moses' time and David's time, God somehow changed from an angry into a gracious God. Now, we know that's not true. We know that God has been unchangingly holy and just for as long as he's been God. And he's been unchangingly gracious and kind for as long as he's been God. And again, I think I may have said this before, that when we're talking about these attributes or perfections of God, we can't pit one against the other. We can't say that God is partially holy and partially gracious so that he balances himself out somehow. Now, we realize that God isn't made up of parts. He's not partially anything. He is entirely holy, entirely gracious, and entirely every one of his other perfections. Now, it's hard for us to understand this because, of course, we're finite creatures and God is infinite. But in order for us to engage with these attributes of God, you basically have to talk about them one at a time. So it seems that Moses was highlighting God's anger against sin in his psalm, and then David is highlighting God's grace 
in his psalm. And then, in verse 13, David changes the metaphor. He turns from the incomprehensible and infinite distances of the previous verses, and he brings us to a place that we can very much understand. He brings us home to a family. He says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now, which of us cannot immediately understand this? Um, Of course, we realize that you mothers also have compassion on your children. It's not just the fathers. And in fact, if your home is anything like mine, our mothers and wives actually have more compassion on our children than I do, than fathers do, perhaps. But we know what David is saying. Um, Anyone that's a parent or grandparent, we cannot help but show love and compassion to our children. Now that said, I know that we live in a world that is wracked by sin. And there are sadly many homes and families where fatherly compassion is not experienced. Um, There are really innumerable children that are either living without a father at all, or are living with a father that's not only uncompassionate, but perhaps actually far worse. But again, the reason David is saying this is because this is the ideal. This is the way that it should be. The compassion that a father has for his children should be a very good illustration of the way that God, our Father, has compassion on us. And then why does God have this compassion on his children? Well, verse 14 It says that he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Well, there it is again, being compared to dust, just like Moses did. The next section of the psalm, verse 15 through 18. Again, we have an interesting contrast. uh, Man's temporary existence and God's eternal grace. Verse 15 and 16 return again to this imagery of grass. Again, something that is uh, so temporary, it's here one day and gone the next. And then verse 17 brings the contrast. That while man's existence is temporary, the contrast here is not with God's eternal existence, but it's actually with God's eternal grace. Where David says, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So David here emphasizes God's eternal grace. In fact, using the same four words that Moses used, from everlasting to everlasting. So not only has God existed for eternity, God's grace exists for eternity. Again, we cannot say that God's grace has a beginning or it has an end. It extends from everlasting to everlasting. And then we shouldn't neglect the qualification, actually, in verse 18. David realizes that this eternal grace, God's saving grace, is not actually bestowed upon every man, woman, and child that's ever lived. He says the objects of these are to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. Now, Why is David saying it like this? It almost sounds like that David is saying that God's grace is shown to people that do certain things. That is what it looks like to keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. Well, I think we 
obviously know from so many other scriptures that David is not teaching a works righteousness here. But he's simply saying, again, in line with what scriptures say elsewhere, that true children of God are those whose lives are characterized by obedience and faithfulness. Not because they're attempting to earn God's favor, but because um, as a result of God's grace and His Spirit in their lives, their lives are transformed. And therefore, they desire and they will, imperfectly, but they will actually, by God's grace, attempt to keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. Then verse 19, a little verse that kind of stands by itself. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So this is a good verse for us, but I think it would particularly have been a good verse for, its, for the psalm's original audience. Again, if they were returning from the exile, coming back to Jerusalem, realizing that there is no king, it appears that David's line has been broken and extinguished. So where's the king? Well, this psalm says that God is the king, and we know that's true. And over what does God rule? Not over just a certain piece of land, but actually over all things. His sovereignty rules over all. And then finally, the last few verses of the psalm, David again rouses himself to praise and bless the Lord, but also not just himself, but every corner of creation. He's calling on all creation everywhere to bring praise to God. Angels, and in fact, all of inanimate creation, all his works, he says in verse 22, bless the Lord, all you works of his. I think that has to include everything God has made, not just people and not just angels, but rocks and hills and skies and trees. And then again, he returns where he began, bless the Lord, O my soul, just like he did in verse 1 calling on all of these corners of the earth to praise God for who he has revealed himself to be. So, as we conclude, how might we think about Psalm 90 and Psalm 103 kind of impacting our own lives, or how could we join with David or with Moses in making these psalms our own? How might we pray them ourselves or sing them ourselves? Well, as I've been trying to do in the survey, I've been trying to make the case that in order for us to make these psalms our own, we need to pray them and we need to sing them in Christ. We need to understand how these psalms um, are related to Jesus. And of course, I know that none of us will be surprised by the last two points. There's no surprise endings or twists here, although I like surprise endings and twists. But we saw in Psalm 90, again, it was focused on man's creatureliness, on his very creaturely condition. And so I think we should be reminded of Jesus' frail humanity. He was made in all things as we are, as the writer to the Hebrew says, yet without sin. And so we should remember that Jesus' humanity was every bit as frail as ours. Not because he was a sinner, but simply because he took upon himself our frame. He was made into flesh. The word became flesh. 
He was made in the likeness of men. And so we know that that means that Jesus experienced all the common experiences that men and women have, the things that you and I have in our lives. Um, We grow hungry, we grow tired. On occasion, we're exasperated by our closest of friends. Jesus was too. We know that he battled temptation repeatedly, and of course, ultimately, he experienced much pain, suffering, and death. And so I think Jesus could easily lead us in singing Psalm 90 because Jesus would understand the things that Moses is talking about, his frail humanity. And of course, we should realize that Jesus is also our perfect example of one who did number his days so that he could present to his Father a heart of wisdom. And then finally, um, again, while in Psalm 90, Moses appealed for God's loving kindness. In Psalm 103, David is rejoicing and glorying in it. Now, neither of these psalms are really prophetic in nature. They're not explicitly looking toward the Messiah. They're not explicitly talking about Jesus. But I think that we know that the means by which we experience God's loving kindness, the means by which we experience God's grace, is in Jesus Christ. Moses knew this, and David knew this. Even if these particular psalms aren't specifically referencing the Messiah, we should remember when we talk about forgiveness of sin, when we talk about grace, we should remember that grace isn't a thing. Grace is not some substance that God gives to us. It's not something that we can have less of or more of on any given day. No, God's grace to us is Jesus Christ. He is the means by which we experience the forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ is the way that God has shown to us his unmerited favor. So when we rejoice with David in Psalm 103 for God's um, eternal forgiveness of sin, we are in a real way rejoicing in Jesus Christ. So Dexter is going to come and lead us again to sing this morning. If we want to go ahead and stand, find the words of Psalm 103 in your handout. We can worship the Lord together. Does anyone need a handout? There's more in the back if you don't have any. The tune is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Bless the Lord, my soul, my whole heart, ever bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, forget not all his blessings to proclaim. He forgives all your transgressions, your diseases, all he heals. He redeems you from destruction, and with you he kindly deals. He with love and mercy crowns you, satisfies your years with good. 
so that you will like the eagle with youth's vigor be renewed. He shall intervene with justice for all those who are oppressed. For their sake the Lord takes action, governing in righteousness. He revealed his deeds to Israel and made Moses know his path. Lord of grace and full of pity, rich in love and slow to wrath, he will not continue striving, nor be angry constantly has not dealt with us as sinners, punishing iniquity. For as high as are the heavens, far above the earth below, just as great to those who fear him is the steadfast love he'll show. Far as east from west is distant, he has put away our sin. Like the pity of a father has the Lord's compassion been. Father, we do thank you for your compassion as our dear Father that you've shown to us. And we know it's only through Christ that you've taken away all of our iniquities. And we're reminded that... Um, that by a single sacrifice, uh, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And uh, Father, we praise you for sending your Son, the perfect Lamb, our Passover Lamb, who takes away all of our sins. And so, Father, would you remind us, uh, would you grow us in worship today as we think about the great salvation you've given us through your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 